Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. Our spring season runs through June, and it's all available online at writersfestival.org, so all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Today we'll hear my conversation with Jeff Vandermeer about his latest offering, Hummingbird Salamander. He's a three-time World Fantasy Award winner, and his best-selling Southern Reach trilogy has been translated into over 35 languages and won the Nebula Award. The books in his Born universe are currently being developed for TV by AMC, and Hummingbird Salamander has already been optioned by Netflix. We'll start with Jeff setting the stage and giving us a taste of the prose before diving into the conversation. I think the best way to describe the book is as an eco-thriller in which this woman named Jane, who never gives her real name, receives the gift of a hummingbird that's been taxidermied, an extinct extinct bird, uh, by a dead eco-activist. And just by accepting this gift, it uh, kind of brings about a chain of events that's in some ways beyond her control, even as she tries to delve into the mystery of why exactly she's been given this and who this dead woman is. So I'm just going to read the very beginning of the novel, since I think it's um, evocative of some of the style of the rest. Assume I'm dead by the time you read this. Assume you're being told all of this by a flicker, a wisp, a thing you can't quite get out of your head now that you found me. And in the beginning, it's you, not me, being handed an envelope with a key inside on a street, in a city, on a winter day so cold that breathing hurts and your lungs creak. A barista leans out onto the sidewalk from your local coffee shop to say, I almost forgot. The before of those words and the after, and you stuck in the middle, I almost forgot. You turn in surprise to receive what someone has left for you, but you don't refuse it. Bodies don't work that way. A person hands you something, you take it a reflex. You worry about what it is later. Oh, fantastic. And that really does set the, the, the mood and the tone. And we are going to be careful in this conversation not to give anything away. Um, not that, uh, you know, we need to be too worried about spoilers, but I do think a lot of the, the joy in this is it's very propulsive. And you were really uh, very clearly playing with a kind of a noir um, rhythm and feeling to it. And I'm wondering, do you even think about genre anymore when you're when you're entering something? How, how did, does genre affect you at all in terms of how you approach writing a book? It's a really great question. You know, it, I, I think that uh, what I do is I think, what, am I doing a renovation or an innovation? Am I, am I doing something that there's a template for and I'm trying to redraw the lines of that or am I going somewhere completely new? And so with this book, I thought, I was really energized and excited because I love thrillers and mysteries and read a lot of them and watch a lot of TV and, and films in that genre. And I love the art form of it. I love the language of it. And I love the kind of beautiful darkness of it, if, if that's a way of saying it. But I also knew that I had a character in Jane whose physicality 
and point of view, we're going to destabilize the standard thriller elements anyway. So I kind of just went with the beats and progressions of a thriller and trusted that Jane was going to kind of disrupt things, especially because she's telling this from a point in, the, in, in of time beyond the, the actual events as they first begin to kind of unfurl. And so she's kind of haunting the narrative, the present of the narrative uh, for the reader. And, and that's why also you can see that kind of modified use of the second person, which kind of draws the reader in and kind of implicates them in what's going on. And all of these things work together with the noir influence to, to do something I hope is, is fairly layered. Mm. And does that rhythm that you're talking about, that noir rhythm, is that something that is is there right from the beginning of the book as you're writing the first draft? Or is that something that you're consciously drawing in in revisions? Right. Well, I mean, I think I think that uh, it's it's really something where it 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 starts with the rhythm of the character's voice. So I have to get that correct to begin with. And then I just modify the um the 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 voice and and the, the sense of the noir because the fact of the matter is that um this book is doing a lot of different things hopefully and and the environmental stuff also through the hummingbird and the salamander of the title actually uh you know make it different as well so it has to be kind of a modifiable style. So for example, I usually start with a full complete sentence and then I go into some sentence fragments and then the end of a paragraph has another complete sentence. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of got that noir feel and then it's also kind of mimicking it. Right. And so, you know, there's the whole, the, the ecological element that is definitely at the heart of this book. And, and over the years, there's been, a you know, you're described very often as sort of, um, because the word that is used to describe the books is, is weird. And I, I, I'm wondering how you feel about that. And also, it seems to me, if I can just put forward that rather than just strangeness for its own sake, the thing that I've noticed reading your work um, is that you seem to be recontextualizing things in a way that makes us uncomfortable, but it's not that it's weird for its own sake. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the weird refers to a particular tradition of, of literature and the uncanny of encounters with the unknown that may include a transcendent or beautiful moment. It's not just about kind of horror or, or unease. And I think that that describes how we navigate uh, this, this planet in terms of how many amazing, beautiful moments there are, but they also are kind of scary to us because we become so disassociated from the non-human world that that things that are quite gorgeous and amazing are sometimes off-putting to us because they're not familiar to us. So one thing I try to do is, is render that unfamiliar, more familiar, or try to get people, readers, to see the way that it's actually quite beautiful and amazing. And, and so, you know, that that's going to vary from reader to reader. I mean, a classic example is Annihilation, where it's weirder to some than others. If you hike in North Florida, it's not really weird to come across a, a dolphin in a freshwater canal during high tide because they come in from the sea. Uh, but, you know, and of course, they don't have human eyes like in the book. But but the point is that uh, just that very aspect of it, you know, even without the human eye is going to be strange to some people who aren't familiar with hiking out there. So, you know, I'm aware of, of, of uh, the fact that it's it's strange to some people or strangers to, to, to others, but it's never in there for um, like shock effect. It's just simply different ways of trying to make visible parts of the world and experiences that I think can sometimes be invisible to people. And I think that's part of the, the job of being a, a novelist is keep pushing at the foundational assumptions of the world and trying to, to you know, push back against the ones you think are false. 
And do you think, I mean, specifically, certainly um, with the book you just referenced and with Hummingbird Salamander, part of what makes Annihilation strange to us or, or uh, some of the scenes here is, is just that we're not that comfortable collectively, the we, uh, with the natural world itself, that there's just something uncanny just about all the things that we're, we're trained not to notice? Well, I mean, I guess the the whole settler mentality, you know, is something that we all, a lot of us have to, a lot of us <laughs> from that world uh, and kind of um, uh, interrogated by that world and, and brainwashed by it have to kind of really cast off. Uh, and, and so, yes, definitely. I mean, you know, you see it here in, in Florida where, where, you know, people want their lawns to be <laughs> perfectly manicured and uh, they have a distaste for the kind of uh, wildness of native plants sometimes and, and, and the disheveled nature of that. And, and so there's all these determinations about what is acceptable, what is beauty, what is vitality uh, in the world around us, even even when thinking about nature, that are that are uh, actually pretty harmful, especially in the context of climate crisis. And so, those are the kinds of things that I I, I want to to push back against. Yeah, and we're recording this on a day when when I, I I'm coming to this interview from just watching a prominent American politician uh, just talk about how. The early settlers to North America found a blank slate and built it from scratch, right? And, and you know, there's this amazing uh, erasure of entire cultures, plural, multiple cultures, thousands of years of history. But almost in that, I'm wondering how much of that, that same colonial, it's about erasing the natural world itself, just the, the very, the ecosystem that all of our success is built on. Well, I mean, I think it's part and parcel because when you think of indigenous land management practices uh, and, you know, the word native plant, at least in the circles that I run in, is is basically pre-settler plants, you know, that have been not just not just evolved over thousands of years to be helpful in a particular landscape, but also, you know, many of them are there because of indigenous land management. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, a, a subtextual, subconscious, but also sometimes conscious erasure, again, of indigenous uh, practices uh, and indigenous people. So I keep that in mind quite a bit. And it, and it doesn't really play much of a role in this book because Jane is so such a novice to environmental themes in general, but Sylvina notes it uh, in parts of her journal, which are quoted in the book, uh, some aspects of that. And uh, it's so fundamental to why we're in the crises we're in because of the way we manage land, because of the way that we think about nature and think about habitat. Uh, and you even see it in places where you shouldn't see it. Like we should be able to see the word solar and think that's actually a good positive thing. But in fact, solar, at least in this country and in Florida, now means uh, you know cutting down forests to put in solar panels. Uh, so you have to be very careful, even as you're fighting the, the fossil fuel industries, that there isn't this rear guard action going on against biodiversity and, and our future uh, from areas where it shouldn't. And that's, again, the same impulse that's kind of like popping up even in the green industry. Right. Now, now, biodiversity is obviously at the core of hummingbird salamander. And you've also, anyone that follows you on Twitter, you've got this remarkable rewilding project in Florida that you've been doing just in your own property. I'm wondering, did, did hummingbird salamander and the rewilding, are, are, did these come at the same time into your life or did one inform the other? They kind of came in at the same time. I was heavily influenced by being a writer in residence at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in upstate New York, uh, which also included some forays into Canada. And, uh, you know, just the the difference in the, the negotiations between farmers and 
hunters uh, and environmentalists there as opposed to in Florida was was quite eye-opening. And then so when we came back to Florida and, and bought the new place, I had that in mind and I was seeing the yard even in with fresh eyes. And it, it kind of is embarrassing to me that I it took 50, <laughs> almost 50 years for me to become more aware of native plants and, and their significance and to become part of a rewilding effort. But it was necessary because our yard was full of invasive plants. And so that process and hummingbird salamander did kind of come together at the same time. I think the main thing is I transferred some of uh, my feelings of angst about not knowing these things to Jane's awakening to the environment. Uh, so, so there is some something in that character of, of myself in terms of uh, the chagrin in, in not coming to it sooner. And I'm wondering, can you maybe just give for, for those that don't are unfamiliar with the term rewilding, it's not just the same as as um, not caring for for a piece of land. You're not just sort of walking away from it, right? You're there. What is it you're looking at, and what why is an invasive species a, a problem on a, a small piece of land? It's a great question, and, and it's easy for me to forget to define terms, so to speak, when because I've been so immersed in it and spent so many hours on this. But you know, basically, if we had looked at this trough of woodland behind our house and there had been no invasives, we would have practice benign neglect. It would have simply been, you know, don't mow, don't weed whack, you know, let the leaf layer stay there for the fireflies and everything else. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that the difference between an invasive plant and a native plant is that the invasive plant is from somewhere, is meant to be somewhere else uh, and probably usually, you know, comes from people planting stuff that they bought at big box stores. Uh, but what it does is it creates a food uh, wasteland and a hosting wasteland for butterflies because, Basically, the native plants, again, have evolved to be hosts for butterflies, have evolved to be food for animals and, and birds. Uh, but these native plants, I mean, these invasive plants don't have any value of that kind, and they also spread rapidly. So you can have a non-native plant that doesn't spread and, and isn't a problem, but the invasives, because they spread, they tend to smother out the native seed bank. Uh, and so one thing that happened when we re removed thousands of coral ardesia from the yard and air potato is that stuff sprang up from the soil without us planting anything that had been waiting dormant for years <laughs> and been suppressed. And as a result, we have so much more biodiversity in the yard because there's so much more food. Obviously, you've been spending a, a great deal of time uh, doing the actual work of rewilding, being in nature, thinking of the natural world and our impact on the natural world. I'm wondering, you know, why... Why does fiction seem like such a natural fit for you to be addressing, you know, what's happening in your own piece of the world? What is it about a story that that makes it more interesting for you? Well, I, I think that uh, I've never been much for the predictive element of science fiction or speculative fiction. I, I, I feel like that's, for me at least, and I know it works for others, is a dead end. For what I want to do is I want to show the psychological reality of a future or a near future or the present I want it also to live in the body as a writer I admire, Lydia Yuknovich likes to say, which is to say, if you can make it visceral, if you can make it someone live in the moment of your world and you happen to be dealing with environmental themes, I think it has a, a huge impact and it speaks to the things that fiction is really good at. And what I was excited about with Hummingbird Salamander was the way that the thriller made things that were didactic and exposition into plot and clues. So I was able to be much more direct about the environment because when Jane's studying this mystery and Sylvina, the, the eco-activist journal and everything, she has to go through these clues about the environment and Sylvina's point of view about it to get to an idea of what Sylvina was actually up to. And so that was very exciting to me is, is finding a, a, a method to do that 
that, that wasn't didactic, that wasn't uh, like an essay, because essays are their own art form, but but you know that's not what a novel usually is. So so those are the things that I was thinking about with Hummingbird Salamander, and and also showing the beauty of the world through the describing in detail the hummingbird's migration, for example, uh, and life cycle, which was actually created by a real biologist, uh, Dr. Megan Brown, for the book. So we should just say that that the the hummingbird and the salamander of the title uh, that appear in the book uh, um, as taxiderm as um, real species. You you. They're, they're, I mean, you're obviously hummingbirds and salamanders exist, but that the specifics of these didn't. Why did you feel the need to invent a species or two species? Well, I joke that it's it's lazy of me, but in actual fact, there are a couple of reasons. One, I'm, I'm really leery of um, creating like all found objects or pieces of information myself because there's become tonal issues. And I'm very much aware even of like a fake journalism included in, in, in novels that doesn't seem very realistic to me, you know, like, you know, quotes from articles and stuff. And uh, so, so I, I thought that that would be, it, it'd be useful to have a scientist actually create it also for complete accuracy. And also because there's kinds of accuracy that I could simulate, but I wanted these to be so accurate that there might be things associated with them that only a biologist could think about. And actually that happened uh, in that the, the, the names of the creatures uh, have uh, hidden meaning and some of the details have hidden in jokes that only biologists will will appreciate, which I think gives it an inner life. But then I also had to react to something that I hadn't created that we had agreed in advance uh, with Dr. Brown that I wouldn't change the details. So I had to incorporate it into the novel in such a way that uh, it fit, but also had the constraint of making it work the way it was. And, and so I thought that Constraint is always a useful thing to have as a novelist. Uh, too much freedom, making up too many facts can, can make you a little lazy in, in how you create a story or a plot. And in fact, it was so beautifully written that I included large portions of it in the book, which I, I didn't know that I was going to include her actual text, but but it worked out that way. And I don't think I would have those effects uh, if, if I hadn't had her create it. Right. I'll just say as a reader, it does feel very much that, that you are discovering with Jane who these species are, the animals. And, and now, and why can you talk a little bit about why a hummingbird and why a salamander? Why these two animals? What, what, are, what is special about them? Well, I think the funniest thing is that originally when I first conceived of the novel, uh, she gets a, Jane gets a note in which uh, like 10 animal names are listed and she has to find all this taxidermy. And as soon as I sat down to write, this was very wearying and didn't make much sense. So I looked at that list and I was like, well, what differentiates these animals? And uh, not only did hummingbird salamanders sound good together, which is not the the main consideration, uh, they're so totally different that they illuminated different aspects of the non-human world. So a hummingbird has this long migration over dangerous territory, much of it now developed, you know, food sources drying up and everything. Uh, that's just absolutely incredible. I, I just feel like it's a, a feat, uh, a, a marathon like no other. And so there was something to be said uh, about a reflection of the human world in, in that. And then also the salamander, is fairly stationary by by uh, comparison, you know, only traveling, you know, a few miles, maybe a little more than that. Uh, but it 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 breathes through its skin basically. So if there's any environmental stressors, it 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 breathes that in through its skin and knows it immediately. So it's a a harbinger of of eco, uh, environmental damage uh, very early on. So I thought that was also interesting and quite a contrast too, because you know I don't think people think of salamanders as beautiful, but they do think hummingbirds are. And so I thought that those essential contrasts made a different in, a difference in the, the life cycles being so different uh, made a point as well. 
Mm-hmm. And now what about taxidermy? There's a fair amount of information in here about taxidermy. It's a, it is a part of the plot. Did you, you know, researching that, like there's certainly a lot of queese-inducing elements when you think about what taxidermy is. How do you feel about that as, as an environmentalist? Like when you're, did, did your research, did, did writing this change how you feel about taxidermy itself or? or? Well, I mean, I think some novelists have written profitably about taxidermy as a reflection of various human um, directives or, or impulses. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I certainly understand that. I, I tend to, to, to bounce off of those novels because I can't, I can't get over what I bring into it, you know, in terms of, you know, often I ask myself with regard to acute video shared, like there's a video of an otter with its its arms uh, through two holes in a glass cage so it can shake hands with people. <laughs> and that was shared as being very cute. And, you know, the immediate thing I do is I think if this was a human being, would we think it's cute? So that applies to taxidermy for me as well. And, uh, and so I've always found it extremely creepy in bars and stuff where you see like a bear head on the wall. Uh, so I tend to cha- share uh, Jane's view of taxidermy in the novel. And, you know, that's another useful thing, too, is, is sometimes when the character's point of view links up with yours, it, it gives you the, the emotional resonance you need. Uh, but then also I found this bizarre book called Fur Town, which was self-published in the or, or was published by the fur industry in the 1930s. And I so actually that's a real book. It, uh, in, in, the, in the novel and people don't even you know, people can't believe it's actually a real book. I assumed, I would, I assumed that was invented. No, it's actually, those are real quotes, fair use quotes or public domain quotes from this book, Fur Town, where the animals are joyous about being turned into fur. (laughs) Uh, And, and, and the photographs and everything, I mean, the, the, the illustrations, everything, it's just one of the most perverse books I've, I've ever read. And I thought it was like a really great, like just in your face, you know, kind of, example of the kind of propaganda we see all the time. Like you see pigs that are joyously welcoming you to the barbecue place, you know? So, so it's like, you know, it's, it's, there's this propaganda all around us. And I thought it was a great way of uh, kind of like rendering that extremely visible and over the top. So the, the, you've mentioned uh, uh, Jane and Silvana. I'm wondering if we could maybe just talk, these are the two characters really at the heart of the story. Jane is our is our protagonist and Silvana is almost a, a haunting or the character that she is pursuing through the story. Can you just tell me a little bit, uh, certainly the Jane, which is not her real name or may not be her real name, is a unique character in terms of her physicality, in terms of her approach. And I, I can't, I honestly can't think of another protagonist that has much in common with her. She's so unique and so interesting. How did she come to you? And I'm just wondering how you discovered her personality and and also the same with Silvana. How did these two women um, become real for you? Yeah, well, I think uh, it, 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 there's a couple of answers. And and with Jane, it's, it's funny that you, you say that because a lot of people have told me it's a very unique character. And then on Twitter just today and yesterday, there, there are a couple of women who, who were reading the book and they're like, how did he know that why did he write about me? <laughs> you know, so it's like um, the, the physicality mixed with the other things uh, is is apparently something that is definitely out there. And, and I would say that it's something that I have uh, I, I've known people like this in terms of uh, someone who's who's comes from a very uh, physical background, you know, as a wrestler or something, and then winds up in a in an industry like a security expert. Uh, and, and so I, I, I like the the dichotomy of that. I like the contradictions uh, in her physicality as opposed to the delicacy of what it takes to be a, a, a kind of a surveillance expert. Uh, but what what it came to me was basically this idea of this this hand holding this hummingbird was one of the images that came to me. And 
and the hand seemed huge. Uh, and of course I was just in contrast with the hummingbird, but then I really thought about it. And as I my imagination kind of pulled away from the hand, I realized it was a woman holding it and that she was incredibly physically strong and not in like a long distance runner strong, but in like a weightlifting strong. And that gave me one anchor because the only thing I can do consistently in terms of exercise is hiking and lifting heavy objects at the gym. I'm not, uh, you know, jogging. It's not something I can like, carry through with for very long or things like that. So, so at least I knew the, the whole gym routine and gym etiquette. And even though it might be a little different for Jane, you know, that, that gave me one anchor. And then another anchor was just simply, there was a scene that I wrote early on where she's walking up a hill and someone's, uh, more or less stalking her and I couldn't figure out the scene for the longest time and then eventually I realized oh she actually just turns around and beats the crap out of him and that told me something really interesting about Jane because you know yes she has that physicality but this guy could be holding a gun or whatever so there was something in her personality too that this told me uh told me something about and then then when I had that key those keys I was able to to write the character. And then also, you know, my wife's uh, was a software manager for years in a male dominated industry, much like Jane is in her workplace. And so uh, Anne's given me plenty of uh, information that was useful for that. So Vina, on the other hand, uh, I got into from the sensitivities of uh, sound and light that occur to her when she's a child to be, make her become an activist because they lay bare all these things about the environment around her that, that are invisible to other people. And uh, that's something that I suffer from too, especially when I have stress, I have extreme light and, uh, and sound sensitivity uh, to the point that, that my wife is fairly sure I can, I can hear a mouse squeak from like a mile away if, on certain days. Um, and so I just channeled that into thinking about how Sylvina became an activist. Uh, and then I also have uh, extensive background uh, in Latin American history as a minor in, in college and uh, some other aspects there that, that allowed me to, to think of who Sylvina was and, and what perspective she was coming from. Hmm, that's fantastic. Yeah, the, the, the physicality of Jane is interesting, not because it doesn't exist in the real world. It certainly does. But it, it is interesting to me how few characters of that type have been written. And it, it is re remarkable. We're seeing, I guess, the notion of representation uh, finally hitting Hollywood, and and certainly it's been happening in literature for the last while, but it, it's phenomenal. I mean, certainly some of the best science fiction in this country is coming from indigenous creators. Um, so I'm wondering, just as you're getting to know Jane and getting to know Sylvana and and entering sort of the world of, of environmental collapse and concern, um, the ideas that that Silvana has for how to make the world a better place are these ideas that you researched, that you found, that that are interesting to you or not interesting to you. How did you approach her environmentalism as it relates to your own? It's a very good question. You know, I, I think uh, talking to environmental activism classes uh, was kind of key to this, and and you can see this even now in in things like that that you know damn project in Canada and and uh, things in the US and in the West, uh, especially in, in the wall, uh, where the constraints of what what protest is have been have been so modified that they are a smaller and smaller box that you're in. So that things that were legal in the 70s now might carry a 10 year sentence, right? <laughs> so one thing I was interested in exploring and in the lab of a, of a novel is you know getting beyond that box uh, and, and describing some things that are definitely not legal and maybe not even things that that we would think of as productive activism, but that I think you know need to be talked about to some degree. 
uh, and need to be thought about with this constraint on us. I mean, here in Florida, we just passed an anti-protest bill because of the BLM protests over the summer. That's absolutely horrifying in terms of what it means for injury, even to people who are in protest, because now you can apparently just drive a car into people if they're protesting and, and get away with it. So those are the kinds of things I was thinking about. I was also thinking about the fact that we're in this situation where as we continue to not do the things we need to do for climate crisis to really be averted is we're, we're approaching a point where, where governments and companies are going to start thinking about much wider scale earth, you know, magnitude type fixes. And I wanted to explore a little bit as Jane is uh, increasingly concerned that, that Sylvina may have something really big up her sleeve in terms of what she was planning uh, to explore, you know, what the implications are of that without, you know, endorsing anything, you know, I mean, th this really is a novel where there's tons of views expressed that have nothing to do with my own, but, but I thought they were important to, to be in there, whether they're extreme or not. And then, of course, is the moment where Sylvina tries to be the good citizen and she creates this uh, environmental community, Unitopia, which is kind of like her bourgeois middle class attempt to create a sustainable society or the blueprint for such a thing. Uh, and it just fails. Uh, and it's not so much in the novel, but I, I imagine it failing because of too much compromise and too many people watering it down. Uh, and, and Sylvina quitting in disgust in part because she feels like it's too compromised to actually be of use. <laughs> uh, so those are the kinds of things that I was thinking about with the book and Sylvina. So you, you, I mean, you're calling, you, you introduced it as an eco thriller. How important is it to you that, that people digest the, the kind of the message of it and how important for, for you is it that people enjoy the mystery of it or the, the, the flow of it, or, or is, do you need them to get both? Well, I mean, I'm always a storyteller first. And uh, if I say eco-thriller, I mean mostly because in some ways it deviates from the beats of a thriller. So that for those who, you know, enjoy your classic thriller, this this may be a deviation that they enjoy or maybe it won't be. <laughs> um, but it is definitely uh, with a separate kind of thing, even though it's also doing some thriller things. So, uh, you know, the short answer is simply that I always want to tell an interesting immersive story. Uh, and then if, if there's something to be, thought about uh, great uh, but i i i you know that that it, it can't be the first first thing uh, as direct as this novel is and, and, and in a way i feel like you're going to be thinking about the environmental issues because of the fact it's so integrated in the plot anyway uh, mm -hmm. so so it's, i don't know uh, if that's a good answer but that's uh, that's how i feel about it well i'm wondering so you know as you come to write hummingbird salamander looking back on your 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 work to this point does your idea of what you want as a writer out of each book has that changed or is it still the same now as it was uh um when you were first writing books and first getting published like are you how is it different for you well i think that uh it, it's it's different in the sense that i really do think more about leaving space for the reader more so than when I was a, a, a young writer starting out, uh, in part because as a young writer starting out, not having much of an audience, you don't get much reader feedback to begin with. Um, so in a way, you're kind of like working in the dark for that aspect of it. Uh, and it doesn't mean like changing something to pander to an audience. But to give you a good example, I, I, had, I went back and forth on exactly how much of the pandemic should be in Hummingbird Salamander, given that it, it kind of the novel kind of takes place in our recent past, our present, and then the immediate future, so to speak. Uh, and ultimately, I thought, you know, this is so raw in people's mind and still unfurling that 
I'll have it in the backdrop, but I feel like the one thing a reader is going to bring to this novel or any novel right now is their experience and their family members' experience and their friends' experience of the pandemic. And I, I didn't want to get in the way of that. Uh, so that may make the, you know, make the, the effect of the pandemic seem lessened in the novel, but at the same time, I feel like that's the kind of thing the reader is going to fill in. And, uh, you know, in other novels, you know, you know, a, a general environmental uh, aspect, I might think, well, this the reader is already going to have a feel for, or this has entered kind of like the pop culture to some degree. So, so I don't need to, you know, press the point so much on this. Mm-hmm. But I guess what I'm trying to understand is, 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 What's in it for you? I mean, often people starting out, you know, they're chasing success or they're chasing a kind of um, a public response. Clearly, you've had that now. I mean, there, there's I mean, I'm sure everyone wants more success, but you're, you're well established when you put out a book. People are looking for it. You've got a dedicated readership. And so I'm just wondering, are, are you coming with are you still asking a, a question and trying to answer it with the fiction? Are you entertaining yourself first and foremost? Like who, what is it that you're trying to get now when you sit down and say, okay, I'm not going to be out in my yard. I'm going to instead sit in front of a computer and, and start typing. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting to me. You know, I started writing very early in part because of nature in part because I, I use it as an escape from family circumstances. And um, I get really antsy if I don't write for a long period. It's very therapeutic for me. Uh, so it's kind of a, I, I, the, the absolute honest answer is that whether I'd ever gotten anything published, I would still be writing today. And, and this was something I, I realized early on and was very liberating. Uh, the two things, one that I always, that all I wanted to be was a writer. And secondly, that I would be perfectly happy writing without being published. So that gives you a certain amount of, of power. And, and, and what I think of now is just simply the same as always, which is the, the stories that come to me from my subconscious that I want to tell, and then thinking of the best ways to tell them. Uh, and thankfully, having a publisher who's or publishers in McClellan and Stewart and, and my other publishers who are willing to follow me across vast stretches of territory that are very, very different. Uh, and I think that's what stimulates me is the fact that I, I'm, I, I have the ability to, to range widely, do different kinds of projects, and, and still have them be published. So that, that's certainly energizing. Uh, and, and the fact that there's an audience for it is energizing, but, but I would still be writing, uh, and writing the same things, uh, whether I had an audience or not. This as a mystery, as a story. And I feel like, uh, uh, that's true of the area X books. That's true to a certain extent of dead astronauts, that there is a kind of a, there is a, a question that is being asked that, that the characters are trying to understand. There's something that is being uncovered and understood. When you're sitting down, do you have the answer or are you coming to that answer at the same, you know, along with the audience? Yeah, I think it's always different. Sometimes I need to know a lot more than the characters know. Sometimes it's very important that I am at street level with them and don't know until they know to some degree. Uh, I'd say on the Area X books, a lot of people ask me, do you know more about Area X? And yes, I absolutely do. Like I know the rules by which Area X turns some people, basically creates doppelgangers of some people and tries to basically transform others into animals. And, and the doppelganger thing is basically if Area X perceives some kind of threat, it makes a doppelganger to try to analyze the situation. <laughs> um, so, you know, and that's something that's not apparent in the text because the characters can't know it. And 
in Southern Reach, it was very important that the character arcs all be complete, but that the storyline could never be complete because, of course, it's about trying to figure out something that's beyond human comprehension. So it'd be kind of a cheat if suddenly we knew exactly what it was at the end. Did you know that when you started writing Annihilation? Did you understand the rules or, or is that sort of partway through, I don't know, Acceptance, the third book? Or when did you, when did you know uh, how Area X worked, I guess, is the question for Partway through uh, Annihilation, writing it, uh, because I was, you know, I had this really wonderful, I thought, creepy atmosphere of mystery with all these these weird things attached to the expedition. And I had this inspiration that, oh, half the weird things are because the secret agency is paranoid and half are because of Area X. And so that allowed me to realize, you know, what the the whole arc of the story was going to be, which, you know, including this examination of the secret agency that was exploring them. Uh, and then also what the nature of of the mystery was and some of Ari X's rules. As soon as I realized there were two camps for these things, and if they didn't fall in these two camps, then it was something that I needed to delete from the rough draft, uh, more or less as being just way too many red herrings. Uh, then I had had clarity on that. And with Hummingbird Salamander, did you know when you started what Jane was going to find or, or yes. did you discover that? You knew. I did, but but I think, you know, and this is the same as with Bourne and some of my other books, when I'm doing a more classical three-act structure, even if it gets kind of destabilized and muddied by the character and, and situation, uh, I think, okay, I know vaguely or more or less where this is going to end up, but I don't know what that's going to look like when I write it at the street level of the scene, like something that in abstract seems like it will work. So what I usually do is it's like, what fits the circumstances that I'm writing towards? I think about this while I'm not working on the rough draft, but just thinking about the novel. And so usually I have two or three different scenarios of like what the ending could be that match the facts, right? Uh, and then by the time I get there, I have a good sense of which of those is the most powerful, fits the beginning the most, and makes the most sense in terms of like a classical three-act structure. And so that's what happened here is I did have a couple of other possible scenarios. And the only thing that changed was that the, the life of the novel and like the way real life intrudes meant that what I thought was the ending was actually just a pause before the ending, uh, which you, you realize is, is something about the passage of time. Uh, and that was pretty pivotal into making the novel, I think, um, better than it was in draft. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for, for taking time to talk with us about Hummingbird Salamander. Can you tell us what's next? Are you working on uh, uh, something else now or do you have to shut down while you go into book promotion mode? Um, I actually, I, I'm writing a lot of uh, uncanny novellas that will be published, I think, under the title The End because they all seem like the last the thing, the last thing you'd read in a collection. <laughs> um, but I also have uh, a really amazing project with Theo Ellsworth, a comics writer, a graphic novel called Secret Life out from Drawn in Quarterly in September. And I'm really psyched about that because uh, he's done an amazing job adapting one of my short stories about this vine that takes over this office building. And did, did uh, the artist do the write the script for the adaptation or did you have to do that? That was the most hilarious thing is I sent him the story and said, you might might find this of interest for doing graphic novel because we talked about collaborating and uh, I heard silence. And then he sent me these pages uh, <laughs> and uh and I was like, what's this? And he's like, oh, well, I just wrote a script in my head and storyboarded it in my head and I've, I've done the, the graphic novel. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, great, this is how it should always work. I, I don't have to do any, anything. And yet it's incredibly faithful to my words. So it's, it's a amazing, you know, uh, his vision and mine intertwined. It's just amazing in this book. Is that something, adaptation, is that something uh, that 
Do you get worried? I mean, obviously, you know this artist, so you, you trusted mm-hmm. them enough to, to say, hey, let's do something together. But are you ever worried about, you know, Hollywood getting a hold of your work and, and making it unrecognizable to you? Or do you see them as completely dis- disparate pieces of work? Well, I mean, that's already happened. So um, it's, it's all good from there. <laughs> I mean... I mean, I'm kind of joking, but uh, but at the same time, you know, it, it, it's it's really kind of more of a process of being a newbie to it. And then as you know, something happens and you're lucky enough to have a movie out and you learn the process and then you you have more control. So uh, on the projects for like Hummingbird Salamander with Netflix and Born with uh, AMC, I, I, you know, not only are we all on the same page, but uh, but I know I know better how to be a, a good influence uh, while not stepping on a creator's toes. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. So yeah, do I worry? I guess I do to some degree, but but I, I'm very confident on the projects uh, that are currently before me that that things will be faithful, but also allow creators who are involved to, to express themselves. That was my conversation with Jeff Vandermeer about his engrossing new novel, Hummingbird Salamander. As always, I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Thank you.